With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to The Freeman Report. My name is James Freeman. I'm a former member of the European Parliament, and this is my weekday show where I break down the big issues of our time in our fight for freedom, liberty, and justice. It is Thursday, the 21st of December, 2023. And on today's show, we'll be taking a snapshot look at the British National Health Service and asking if it is indeed a health service, a national health service of any sorts anymore. On a personal level, I dread the thought of ever going into the hospitals, even if I was very sick. For starters, my trust in doctors and the medical establishment in general has been rocked to the core over the past three years. And also, it doesn't help that doctors and nurses have remained quiet when lots of them, lots of them know about the harms caused by the injections. Waiting rooms that look like war zones with people sleeping in chairs waiting to be seen for serious conditions. Ambulances stacked up outside hospitals with patients that cannot be allocated beds. And blunders that can only occur when resources are so stretched that important diagnostic signs are missed. Three years ago, we were all told to stay at home and only come out once a week to clap for NHS workers. We were told to do this to save the NHS. We were also told to roll up our sleeves to save the NHS and granny. And like many of us argued at the time, those were the very commands that would later end up damaging people's health. Now, I took a look at excess deaths in England this morning using a great charting tool produced by the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities. Um, if you want to take a look at it for yourself, it's really easy to use. Just search for excess mortality in England and English regions. That's Google excess mortality in England and English regions. Click on the link and then within that, click on the analysis link. Um, it's a great tool as you can look at excess deaths in chart form by simply selecting variables from the left side of the screen. You can chart excess deaths by region, by age, cause of death, um, ethnic group, deprivation and place of death. Now, there are a few things that jump out when eyeballing the data, and that is that excess deaths are consistently high and pervasive in the 25 to 49 and 50 to 64 age groups. And when you look at causes of excess deaths, deaths related to heart issues are persistently high. And this is all since 2021, the start of that year. Unfortunately, you cannot cut the data by age and cause, but it is clear that lots of relatively young people are dying unexpectedly and that deaths from heart-related issues are persistent. Workers in the UK are also taking more time off work due to sickness. Looking at the Office for National Statistics data, you can clearly see that the rate of sickness levels fell um, consistently from a rate of 3.1% in 1996 to 1.8% in 2020. However, 
in 2021 and 2022, the rate started to rise steeply, reaching 2.6 in 2022, which is the latest data point available. But I've got a feeling that it will rise much further in 2023. So we're seeing worse health outcomes, which many, including me, are putting down to those commands to stay indoors and roll up your sleeve to save the NHS. But did it save the NHS? Well, on that question, it seems not, because on the whole, a whole host of measures, the NHS is in the worst state that it's been in generations. The highest waiting list, longest ambulance response times, the longest waiting times in A and E. I could go on and on. Now, I've talked before about why I think the NHS is in continuous crisis, and it isn't to do with the scamdemic, although actions taken by our governments um, in terms of people staying indoors and rolling up their sleeves have clearly made things worse in terms of <clears throat> increased demand for services. No, as I've said before, um, as the population of the UK has risen over the past 30, 40 years, NHS capacity has been declining, um, capacity defined in terms of beds, nurses and doctors. The UK on um, uh, the the league tables um, for other um, you know advanced economies is right at the bottom um, with um, when compared with these countries in terms of doctors, nurses, and beds, the things that make up the capacity of the NHS. But on funding, no, we're right at the top of the league tables in terms of the spending on healthcare as a percentage of GDP. We're right at the top of the league in terms of that table. So declining capacity to treat a larger population combined, combined with ever higher levels of funding. Why is this? How can that be true, both of those things? Well, once you understand that across the past few decades, successive governments have been slowly restructuring the NHS towards private healthcare, then you start to understand why this is happening. What successive governments have been doing is getting the NHS ready for privatisation. And this is the topic of today's show. And to kick things off, we're going to look at a single case study. So Dave, who's going to come on the show first, had a stroke recently and contacted me to share his experience. Um, so he'll be talking about his experience in terms of his own care, but also what he saw in the hospital where when, while he was there. And while I know that we cannot generalize from one case study, what Dave talks about, I spoke to him on the phone yesterday, is exactly what is being reported across the country. Once we've heard from Dave, um, we'll be hearing from Dr. Bob Gill, um, who has been campaigning to raise awareness of the privatization happening before our eyes, something the politicians from all parties are hiding from the public. Bob has been on the Freeman Report before, and I'm delighted that he'll be joining us once again in a moment to talk about the latest on the privatization of the NHS. If you want to get in touch, then email me as normal at jamesfreeman at tntradio.live. And if you want to join in the conversation, get yourself over to tntradio.live and click on the chat icon. My name is James Freeman, and this is the Freeman Report for TNT Radio. 
Keeping the commitment 24-7. I've been in the car all day and I got to listen. Can't get enough of it. You guys are doing a great job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Good morning, Gemma. How are you doing? Yes, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, heading hurtling towards the weekend, the Christmas weekend. It's almost upon us, isn't it? It certainly is. There's a couple of things I want to say, Gemma. Firstly, yeah, I've got the lurgies like you. I know you've been suffering over the last weeks. Um, but yeah, they were knocking on my door yesterday. Well, they've, they've, they've pushed that door in and they're definitely in control because I was up coughing all, all morning. Um, but it's not due to you, Gemma, because obviously we haven't seen each other recently. Um, the second thing is actually I'm going to concede to a little argument we were having yesterday. Um it is a technicality because if you Google um, the, the the winter solstice, <laughs> it does say the 21st, which is today. But after speaking with one of my guests tomorrow, who's an expert on all of this, he'll be appearing first tomorrow to tell us about the winter solstice, about star signs and all of that. Um, he did say that technically you are right. The solstice does fall tomorrow. <laughs> but I did, I did have this conversation with my wife this morning and she was actually saying yes, the, the point where we move um, into from, you know, shortening days into longering days, if you can say it that way, um, happens at three o'clock in the morning tomorrow. She was saying, but yes, surely still the shortest day is today. So there's a little bit of wiggle room that maybe <laughs> you're not right. But but I'm going to concede and, 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 and give in and say that you were right yesterday. Thank you. The words I love hearing. Gemma, you are right. Who doesn't love hearing that? Who doesn't love hearing it? I mean, I think we're talking about two different things. And I know the guest you're talking about is John Wadsworth, the great astrologer. He's based in Glastonbury. He's written loads of books. He's a great astrologer. And I'll be I'll be listening with absolute, you know, rivetedness of what hear what he has to say. I think the shortest day and the solstice, the actual technical time of the solstice, where everything, you know, reaches that point in the heavens, I think they are two different things. But let's let the expert wade in. I'm just going to take a victory from you, James. I love it when you, you should have said Jemsy. Jemsy, you were right. That would have made it even better, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay, here you go. Um, Jemsy, you were right. Yes. <laughs> great, great. Well, um, just thinking about your editorial there, and you know, it's worth bringing to the table. You know, where where we are with the NHS today, because we're on the second day of the junior doctors' strike. Um, it's three days of strikes now. Finishes tomorrow, uh, and then there's another. Uh, strike in January, which will go on for six days. Um, and that means there's only four functioning, full functioning days in the NHS due to this industrial action. And this is the longest piece now of industrial action in NHS history, the junior doctors strike. Um, the government says it's disappointed at this. It says it's reached a, con uh, you know, a resolution with doctors and senior consultants, um, but they're, they're really sticking to their guns here. And actually talking about A&E and ambulance waiting times, which we have covered extensively on TNT, um, the health secretary earlier in the week, she has summoned the worst five performing accident and emergency departments in the UK to a kind of crisis talks. And she's basically saying, you know, I'm launching a crackdown on you. You've got to buck your ideas up. Um, and this follows the fact that Cheltenham accident and emergency department earlier in the week announced it was just going to close and it's not going to reopen until the 23rd and then it will close again in January for nine days. That's accident and emergency. That's front line. And we already have ambulances waiting outside A&E and outside hospitals with patients on there for 10 hours. 10 hours in an ambulance, that's longer than you spend in an office. So, you know, there's a very bleak picture for the NHS, which only three and a half years ago, everybody was told to protect, protect, protect. Well, as you rightly say, the government's mm. not protecting it at all. Um, and it'd be interesting, you know, what your guest says and, and the case study about where they feel that this is going, privatisation all the way.
Yeah, and of course, this is just politics now calling in crisis talks. Obviously, they want the public to think that it's actually the hospitals themselves that are causing these problems. But, you know, the waiting list in A&E and all of that and, and you know, the ambulances outside are because there aren't enough doctors, beds and nurses. That's it. That is how we deliver healthcare via those those professionals and also, you know, the number of beds we've got in the hospitals. And if you look at that over the last 30, 40 years, it's been declining um, quite severely. And not only that, because you could argue that, well, this has been going on. We've seen increases in technology, so we don't need so many doctors and nurses and beds. But it's not going on in other European countries, Germany, France. Um, they haven't got this problem. They're at the top of the league in terms of that capacity in the service. Whereas when you look at the UK, we're right at the bottom. But as I said in my introduction, when you look at the, the amount of money we're spending on the health service as a percentage of GDP, the UK is right up there at the top. So we're spending a lot of money to get a worse service than our competing other competing um, leading economies. Um, there's something going very, very wrong. And I've got a feeling that Do Dr. Bob Gill has the answer. Well, it's interesting about um, we haven't got enough doctors. One of the one of the leading medical associations today has said about the the strike. Um, the reason that they're striking is pay, uh, and the reason they're striking is because the pay isn't good enough. They're saying to keep them in this country once they're qualified, that they can, or even as a junior doctor, you can make more money going abroad and working somewhere else. So that's the kind of leveling there. So you could argue that's why there aren't enough doctors. I'm just saying these are facts and comments that have been brought to the table. Um, but you know, no one can deny that the the quality of service to the patients, let's not forget the patients in the UK are paying for the NHS, is declining, declining, declining. I, my heart goes out to anybody who's suffering in a, on a hospital trolley or in an ambulance for 10 hours when you're already distressed and upset. Don't forget the human cost in all of this, and not just the political wranglings and shenanigans. It's the human cost of the people who suffer while they're slowly dismantling what's supposed to be the jewel in, in Britain's crown. Yeah, and one of the questions I'll be asking Dr. Bob Gill is, is is this crisis the fault of doctors and nurses? Now, look, you know, I've lost a lot of confidence in a lot of them over the last three years because it's clear. And, you know, my first guest, Dave, who had a stroke recently, he'll tell us about his experience talking to a cardiologist and what they really know about what's gone on over the past three years with the injections. So I've lost confidence in them because a lot of them have stayed quiet, the ones that did know, and they're still remaining quiet because their fear of their, their careers and their jobs. So that has lost a lot of confidence, but I don't think it's their fault that the service is in such a mess when you look at the trends over the past 30, 40 years. Right, um, Gemzy, um, I hope you have a great rest of the day and um, we'll look forward to that guest tomorrow to talk all about the um, the winter solstice and also star signs and a load of other mystical stuff that I have no idea about. So looking forward to that. Right, to the rest of you, stay tuned with me, James Freeman on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Kate Shamarani. Don't stop taking prescription medication. Always go and see your indoctrinated GP, always. But with psychiatric drugs, you have to actually wean off them. They're very addictive and you have to wean off them. Now, I find all this really concerning. But what I cannot get my head around is the worst drug of all. They just let it on the market all the time. Sugar, 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 sugar. And then that's not even to bring in like MSG, monosodium glutamate. And, and I, 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 
can say, you know, you go into one of these garages and you see all the people going for food. There's nothing to eat in there. I very rarely can find anything to eat in any of these places. And if you go into the supermarket, there's only the first two aisles that have got real food. The rest, it, it's not food. And I see what people buy. I've covertly actually filmed people's trolleys, not them, don't get all excited, but I have filmed trolleys uh, to have a look what people are buying and it's shocking because what you eat determines what your brain's going to be like and your teenager's brains do not stop developing till they're about 25 years of age. Kate Shimarani on TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. <laughs> No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk Today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Right, welcome back. Well, I'm delighted. Um, I was contacted recently by Dave, um, who will be with us in just a second. Um, and he wanted to share, he's listened to the show before, he listens to TNT. He wanted to share his experience. Um, he recently um, had a stroke um, and he was actually in hospital for about a week. Um, it was a terrible experience from start to finish. Um, both in terms of his personal care, but also what he saw while he was in the hospital. So I'm delighted that Dave is joining me today. How are you doing, Dave? Oh, I'm I'm doing fine. A little bit of struggling still, but uh, happy to be here. Yeah. So sorry to hear about what's happened to you recently. I, uh, maybe we should start there. Um, please tell us what happened to you, um, and I guess how are you doing now? How are you recovering? Um. Well, it turns out I've had a stroke at the back of the head, at the base of the of the brain. But that wasn't apparent immediately to me. I thought it was um, vertigo. It was first thing in the morning. I suddenly awoke, knowing that there was something not right. Tried to ignore it, but uh, very very quickly realised there was something very wrong. Um, got onto Doctor Google and thought it was vertigo, and tried to get over the worst of the initial symptoms for three days at home before eventually going through the medical system um but now I, i've recovered it's been two weeks since that and i've improving every day and i feel pretty good now actually thank you well i'm glad i'm glad to hear it dave um, that's really good news um yeah. so david tell us um tell us from start to finish so you obviously had this happen to you um tell us your experience both from you know actually getting um, attention from the hospital and actually going in there to the care you received. Tell us your story, Dave. Well, I think I got, I got in touch with you because I, I think I'm a typical TNT listener and and all through the pandemic, I, I finished with the NHS. I, I never wanted to see them again. And I, so, so, of course, I had concerns about being able to get medical care and would I wear a mask and would they test me for COVID and all of this. Um, but that turns out to be false i'd encourage anybody to approach the hospitals now without that fear um i went through the 111 system in the uk and i was amazed that it was very efficient i got to see somebody straight away talk through my symptoms and they quickly arranged for an interview with my gp uh, initially I, I didn't think i could get there because of my condition but i was basically forced into it by my wife when i got there 
to the GP. They took my blood pressure. It was 200 and something, over 100 and something. And they told me that they suspected it could be a stroke, but it could be this vertigo. Eventually, my wife did take me to the medical assessment unit in Newport, and at the infirmary called the Gwent Royal, um, where I think I was looking, having gone through the 1-1 system, that I got seen within 15 minutes of arriving to have again my OBS taken, and it was still over 200, and they knew I was in some critical condition. So that was it was all going well for the first 15 minutes, maybe an hour. But I didn't see a doctor for four hours. Um, the place was generally empty when I got there. There was about five or six other patients there. So I thought, this is good. Um, the doctor saw me. She sort of relaxed me to think that, that it wasn't, serious but it may not be a stroke but i needed a cat scan and the cat scan took another two hours of waiting this is doc took me through to the small hours of the morning so at 2 a.m um that then I, then we had to wait for the results of course that took another hour by which time my wife left and i was left on my own about 3 a.m as my life was leaving the doctor approached us and said i need to stay because they'd found something on the CAT scan and they needed further investigation. They talked about swelling at the back of the head and maybe it was a tumour or, or something like that. Um, my wife left and I. they told me how I had to sleep in the waiting room. And it, it was abysmal at this point, absolutely abysmal. There were people um, um, sleeping around, but it, it wasn't long. 4 a.m. I actually got to bed. They took me in and then that, that went batshit crazy for me. Um, as I entered, there was noise, there was chaos, and I just wanted to sleep, and that was proved to be absolutely impossible. Yeah, so just to summarise what you just said, I mean, look, you know, one of the things that I know very well, I've had family members um, suffer from strokes, is it is all about time. Um, you know, you you can actually, um, you know, solve a lot of the later problems and, and sort of reduce... Yeah. The symptoms from strokes if you deal with it very very quickly from what you just told me there from the point which when when you got into hospital to the point they actually put you in a bed and presumably started giving you care that was about seven mm. hours i think yeah, is, is yeah. that about right absolutely right yes yeah, seven guess, hours and i guess and the other thing to point out here is yeah is that you were you were, had to sleep in 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 mm. the waiting room so okay yeah. so that in itself is 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 very very worrying, and of course these things, if then if they're missed, and you know we you don't get that medication early on and that care, then ultimately it does end up obviously with you suffering symptoms, but it costs the NHS more in the long run because you know people you end up with people with much more severe um, symptoms. And um, tell mm. us what it was like then. You, I think you were in for about six days in total, weren't you, Dave? In the Royal Infirmary, I was there for six days, and then I got transferred to an, a specialist hospital. Uh, near Cardiff. Um, so all in all, I was in for just under two weeks between two places. Um, right. But the, it was the Gwent Royal Infirmary that really upset me. Um, for, the, for those six days, I got very little sleep. And I, at the end, I was going to discharge myself. I felt I was in like a third world war zone or a CIA torture camp, given the, the, the noise, the monitors beeping off the unnecessary monitors that they put on people that kept people awake, very loud. Um, the staff didn't mm. seem to care that this noise was going on. I pleaded with people to turn these noises off and 
that it, it, it wasn't going to happen. And even if they did turn it on soon enough, soon enough, they were back on. There's people with dementia in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the hospital calling for help, which really was quite distressing. Um, the toilets were, were, were blocked and full of shit, basically. Um, the whole thing was just a, a nasty experience for those six days in the ground. Yeah, that sounds really terrible. What you did actually, you know, obviously during that time you got up and you, you, you know, you walked around the hospital, presumably you went to the cafe. Yeah. I do know the Gwent, by the way, that's my nearest big hospital. What, yeah. what did you see while you were there? What was, um, you know, what kind of things did you observe around, about the hospital? Well, eventually I, I, I could walk with a little zipper frame to the toilet and eventually I wanted to get out and, and go to the coffee shop, which wasn't very far from where my, my, my bed was. And uh, so I went with my wife and my daughter. And the, the horrendous scene to me was when I, as I was walking out of the ward, I had to walk through the assessment unit that I'd been in a few days earlier to see it just absolute chock with people, people lying on the floor, sleeping on the benches, crying, noises. And even when you went out of the assessment room, there were people spilling out over into the corridors. And I saw at least three trolleys with patients that were ambulance trolleys with the, with the paramedics or the ambulance drivers waiting with them. And I just thought, God, it took me eight hours, seven hours on an empty room to be seen these these people must have been there all day and all night like I, I can't believe they would ever have been seen and these are ambulance drivers waiting with them um yeah. so I, I had to sort of weave my way in and out to get to the coffee shop but i just thought i was so so sad for the people that that came in after me yeah, I mean, I've got two um, children. Um, they're growing up now, but um, I did have to take them in. Um, well, my son a couple of times for him doing really silly things and injuring himself. Um, yeah. But you know what you've described there is exactly the um, the kind of experience that I had. We we ended up being in there. I think one occasion for ten hours, and it really was like a war zone. Um, just people everywhere, absolute chaos, no information about wh when you're going to be right. seen and what's going on. Um, mm. It really is. And, you know, I think we've got to be careful not to generalise on the one hand from one hospital to the rest of the country, but also particularly on specific instances. But what you're describing there and my own experience um, in that hospital is what we're hearing in reports up and down the country um, in the newspapers um, and from the statistics actually coming out of the NHS itself. So I think, you know, your experience, I don't think it's a one off. I think this is what we're seeing up and down the country. Now, listen, Dave, um, in a moment, um, Dr. Bob Gill is going to come on and he's going to talk about the wider picture. But listen, thank you so much for coming on and for getting in touch um, and sharing your experience. I think it's really important that we do hear about these stories um, of, you know, people's actual experience of the NHS. So um, thank you, Dave, and yeah. from TNT no, and you. myself, I hope you yeah. carry on you know, um, recovering no, and you I have a great just, Christmas. If I could just say that my top tip for people who want to go in in, uh, in, in the hospital is take in a laptop and listen to TNT radio. It, it was such a help <laughs> to know that people were waking up. Yes. <laughs> as well as yes, the I like that. Perfect. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, like I said, have a great Christmas and I hope you keep on getting better.
Right. Okay. So we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Bob Gill, who's um, been campaigning for a long time now to raise awareness of the privatization that's going on right well before our eyes but is being hidden by the politicians from the public so stay tuned with me james freeman on tnt radio tnt radio news i've got news for you baby i've got news for you baby news matt boyland here with your tnt headlines the Australian government has confirmed it has rejected a US request to send one of its warships to the Middle East, announcing instead it has agreed to deploy 11 Navy personnel to the region. The decision by Colorado's Supreme Court to block the state's 5.8 million residents from voting for Donald Trump in next year's election continues to ignite outrage, and it's been revealed the British military has secretly played a major role in US military operations in Africa. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab or Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Right. Well, as I said before the break, Dr. Bob Gill has been on the Freeman Report um, before. So I'm absolutely delighted that he's um, come back. I didn't put him off the first time and he's with us now. Hello, Bob. How are you doing? Hi, very well. Thank you, James. Now, um, I'm sure many of our listeners and watchers will know who you are, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind just starting off with a quick introduction, I guess, about yourself, your qualifications, but also what you've been doing over the past few years with regards to the campaigning you've done on the NHS. Yeah, so I, I'm a full-time NHS uh, GP. Uh, I've been a doctor for 30 years, and for the last 10 years, I've been trying to highlight um, the sort of corporate assault facilitated by our governments on the NHS. So, so what's happened to the NHS has been largely privatised by stealth, and yet most people are unaware of it. Yeah, and we've—I don't know whether you just heard the um, the first guest there. It was actually somebody who'd su suffered from a stroke recently, and he wanted—he got in touch with me, and he wanted to share his experience because it was pretty awful um, experience, and also some of the things that he saw in the hospitals. You know, um, hosp um, um, corridors flooded with people, people sleeping on the floor, and that kind of thing. What, as a professional? What's your understanding about the state of the NHS at the moment? Yeah, well, it's in, it's in crisis. It's a manufactured crisis. The government, um, government, consecutive governments have deliberately shrunk the capacity of the NHS. We have half the number of beds that we did back in the 1980s. We have a third the number of beds per capita compared to Germany. Um, on top of that, we've got a staffing crisis whereby we can't retain staff and we're having a hemorrhage of staff um, to other countries or they're just giving up medicine altogether because they're working under hellish circumstances. And we know in recent months there's been you know, upwards of 50,000 people waiting for a bed uh, after the decision to admit them has been taken. And we know for every 80 patients in that situation, one will die preventably. So the picture your, your last guest paints is realistic and felt most uh, acutely in A&E departments. Yeah, now, obviously, we've had the pandemic across the past, um, well, three years ago. 
and that is increased um, demand for services, haven't it? I think that's clear when we look at excess deaths. Um, you know, there's something going on in the country. I don't want to get go down that avenue and talk about why that is. But, you know, I think the politicians want us to believe that the, the reason where the NHS is still in crisis today is because of the pandemic itself. Um, what's your thoughts on that question? Yeah, so the pandemic has provided great cover for this political process to damage the health service. You know, the waiting lists were approaching 5 million before the pandemic. They're in excess of, I believe, 8, eight million now. Um, the decision to shut down health service provision during the pandemic was catastrophic um, and just has made the situation worse. The staff are burnt out because of what they've been through, uh, through the crisis. Um, so yes, none of this uh, is unhelpful to the government because they can hide behind the pandemic. They can blame the staff for going on strike. Meanwhile, it's actually their policies that have done the damage. Yeah. And and Bob, there'll be people listening. I know TNT radios quite well. There'll be people listening saying, well, hang on a second. They burnt out by the crisis. The hospitals were mainly empty in, in 2020 and 2021. And I think there is a little bit of truth in that. But what the government and what the, the health service did do to doctors and nurses was get them to you know, they, the regimes that they were under in terms of separating patients, in terms of, um, you know, infection control. I think any normal person, it would have sent them absolutely crazy. These, um, So they were busy, but not necessarily busy with patients across that period. Now, Bob, obviously, you know, this past 18 months, we've had a lot of strikes um, from doctors and nurses, and it's ongoing at the moment. We've got junior doctors striking at the moment, and I think in Wales, um, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see more strikes from junior doctors there. Do you think, therefore, that this crisis is actually the fault of nurses and doctors, of key workers in the NHS? Yeah, well, if if you look at the, uh, the numbers in terms of cancelled appointments, the vast majority are absolutely nothing to do with strike action. I believe it, you know, contributes maybe 5% to the total number of um, appointments cancelled. But it's easy to hide behind blaming the striking doctors. But why are they striking? They're striking because they've lost a third of their income in real terms over the past decade. They're striking because they're working in unsafe environments. They're striking because they are psychologically traumatized by having to deal with patients on floors, in corridors, and having to face people who've had delays in diagnosis for whatever reason. So, you know, the chronic strain, the buildup of waiting lists, the lack of resources is forcing people out. And this this isn't just a purely uh, selfish reason for striking. They can see the NHS is on its knees and they can see their colleagues leaving. So these are the last people standing. And they're saying, look, unless you unless you correct this financial uh, straitjacket you've applied unnecessarily on the NHS, you're going to make the situation worse. And of course, the government is using the preventable harm and death of patients as a lubricant for their privatization agenda. Yeah. And we'll talk all about that in a second, what's actually been going on structurally with the NHS, because I know that you've been looking at this for a long time. But as a GP, how have you seen pressures increase on you personally over the last sort of 20 years and, and other general practices? 
Well, so we have this waiting list problem. If patients aren't dealt with uh, by the hospital, for example, getting a knee replacement, well, where do they go? So they end up coming back to the GP more and more often, ending up on more and more painkillers, for example. So you have the knock-on effect of the waiting list. There's more and more pressure on hospital outpatients to discharge people prematurely. So that workload burden gets dumped onto the GP. Then you have the uh, burgeoning bureaucracy of running the market. So we're constantly monitoring our own performance to provide data for the managers to decide whether to pay us or not. So there's a bureaucratic burden. There's a fallout from the hospital sector. And even within general practice, we have a workforce crisis. Right. Okay. So I think we've um, clearly set out the context that we're going to talk for our next conversation after the break, which is, um, you know, the NHS is in crisis. We've touched on some of the reasons why the capacity in terms of beds, doctors and nurses. But after this break, Bob, um, we're going to talk about some of the wider structural changes that have been going on over the past 30 years, because they are key. And they also give us a clue to why, um, what the government has been up to, because I think in my view, and I know this is your view, Bob, they've been quietly preparing the NHS for privatisation over the past 30 years. And this is successive governments. This isn't just the Tories. This is Labour as well. Um, so um, don't go anywhere, Bob. We're going to talk about that all after this quick break. So stay tuned with me, James Freeman on TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Republican Senator Ron Johnson gets it. And here he is stating the obvious about Ukraine, something that so many people in Washington just refuse to acknowledge. This is a bloody stalemate. Every day that goes by, more Ukrainians die, more Russian conscripts die. Take no joy in that. More Ukraine gets destroyed. So this war should be brought to an end, the sooner the better, uh, because every day the outcome ends up being worse. It's going to have to be a negotiated settlement. And Johnson has the guts to talk about what's really happening in our country. We've already seen a diminished America. If, if you if you were asked to design a strategy to destroy this country, you could not ask for a better game plan than what President Biden and the Democrats are Does it are seem purposeful to you? How could it almost not be? I mean, the open borders, the you know, 40-year high inflation, war on fossil fuel, the embarrassing and dangerous surrender in Afghanistan, which has emboldened Putin. That, that's why Putin's in Ukraine, because we surrendered in Afghanistan. He saw the weakness. That's what the Mullahs are seeing. That's what the President Xi sees. So they're destroying this country, Democrat governance is. A purposeful weakening and ruining of the United States of America brought to you by Joe Biden and the people who are really running the country. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see how fast you can go under the most extreme conditions, like when it's dark, when the weather's bad, or when the unexpected happens. The higher the speed, the harder the impact. But driving isn't a game or a race. When you're on the road, just 10 miles per hour over the limit can mean the difference between life and death. You're responsible for people's lives and your own. Slow down and save lives. The Freeman Report on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This certainly is The Freeman Report. I'm James Freeman and my guest today is Dr. Bob Gill. Now, Bob, um, when you were on the show last time, you talked about these integrated care boards. I wonder if you wouldn't mind, because I think this is really important in terms of what's been going on structurally with the NHS. Tell us what they are and what you think the impact will be on care going forward. 
Yeah, so these are new legal entities, new public-private partnerships created uh, in, in England last year. There are 42 of them. And essentially what it does, it creates a vehicle for public funding to go into a business entity run by the private sector. So you've, in one fair swoop, handed over control of NHS budgets to private companies, private companies which are designed on the US model of managed care, and money that is not spent on healthcare is kept as profit. Now, clearly, introducing a system like that has a perverse incentive to deny sick people care. Because if you save money on patients, this will go out in terms of dividends to shareholders and chief executive bonuses. So the, the system that Michael Moore highlighted in his film Sicko is the one we have copied. And that will mean preventable harm and death as a price for profiteering. Now, Bob, I mean, that sounds horrendous at face value. Um, now, and I think most you know, average people in the UK would say, yeah, okay, that might be the case, but surely there, there's controls in place to monitor this and to make sure these companies aren't just running away and focusing on profits rather than care, because that's what the NHS is supposed to focus on. What controls has the government put in place to ensure that doesn't happen? Well, you know, it's a, it's a neoliberal contract to have toothless regulators to provide cover in some, you know, representing the public interest. This is nonsense. Just look at the water system. We have privatized water, and currently the public is subsidizing water companies to pump shit into our rivers. That's the sort of regulation that this new system will have. So to just, just describe for a second, what is that? So there's a regulator somewhere. Um, what, 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 what regulator is that? So you have the uh, Care Quality Commission, a, you know, much of the money that goes into the Care Quality Commission is spent on senior personnel. It is a toothless organization, often responding to crises that have been pointed out by whistleblowers and very rarely identifying problems themselves. They're, they are, in effect, a smokescreen to let the public feel somehow that their interests are protected. But we know this from the utility regulators that, you know, mm. even with energy, um, Prices keep going up and the public, you know, the public are told, well, we can't do much about this. You know, there's a market and what have you. And what the, what's the government solution to subsidize the profits? Yeah. And what we've seen, and I was actually thinking of the water companies um, when I asked that question, what we've seen there is on, on the face of it, when you look at the, the, the rules in place, the environmental rules that Gove brought in, um, they're actually very, very good. Um, very, very, um, you know, they're, they're, they talk about higher standards and um, more regulations than we've ever seen in the past. The problem is that the government has underfunded the regulator. So the regulator hasn't got the funds, the resources to actually monitor what's going on and then to do anything about it. That's the problem we've got there. Is Are we seeing a similar problem here or are you saying the Quality Care Commission doesn't have any teeth in the first place? Well, that is by design. So this is not, we mustn't frame this as incompetent. It's by design. If you're setting up a system which is there to deny sick people care, you're going to have a lot more harm being caused. So you do not, if your government set up an effective regulator, you you set up a smokescreen. 
the other problem with the regulators, if you look at their their career histories, well, often they're coming from the private sector. So it wouldn't be uh, unusual to have these integrated care boards and the regulators manned by people from the big four accountancy firms, the management consultancies like McKinsey's and the banking industry. Now, what are these people doing in healthcare? Mm. And of course, this is the revolving doors problem that we've got, isn't it? Um, we've seen it with Jonathan Van Tam recently. Obviously, he was the deputy chief medical officer across the pandemic. Um, and he's gone off, I think, to Moderna. I think it's Moderna he's gone off to. That's right. Um, you know, clearly taking all of the information about how government works and, and all of that. And I'm sure at some point in the future, he might even come back into government. It is a, definitely a real problem um, that we're seeing. Now, um, just in the break there, um, uh, uh, Bob, you were telling me about something that's happened in Parliament this week. Tell us what's happened um, this week. Yeah, so in connection with the uh, junior doctors' uh, strike action and industrial dispute, this is a problem that could easily be remedied by spending a fraction of the costs that the government poured down the drain in terms of the pandemic response. Now, in parallel to not uh, you know, reaching out and resolving the junior doctor dispute, in Parliament on Monday, the government sneaked through something called a statutory instrument, which means you can change law without any parliamentary debate or without a vote. And the statutory instrument is being applied to the Medical Act, which talks about regulation, now, we have a general medical council in, in the UK, which regulates doctors. It's only formed to regulate doctors. However, they want to introduce under their umbrella what are called physician's assistants or physician's associates who do not go to medical school, don't have medical training, but by doing this will give them the status of a doctor, adding to public confusion and blurring the lines. So you have a the system is now actively dumbing down service provision. This is quite shocking, isn't it? And it's been going on for a long time, hasn't it? This isn't um, just the Tory government, because, of course, you know, the old sort of um, tennis game between red and blue has always been Labour saying, well, the Tories will ruin the NHS, and then the Tories will say you can't trust Labour with the economy. But let's just be clear. Um, when did all of this start in, in your mind, Bob, this, this move to prepare the NHS for privatisation? Well, you know, one of the early documents was back in 1977, the Economic Restructuring Group, uh, chaired by Nicholas Ridley, who spelt out that the post-war settlement of nationalised industries and the welfare state needed to be reversed. They set about um, privatising the utilities as a full frontal a big bang privatization, but they had special mention for the NHS to avoid a frontal assault, to break the NHS up into separate profit centers, and to do it by stealth. Unfortunately, all parties have played their part. You've had the Blair Brown years that carried on 13 years of privatization, saddled the NHS with toxic private finance initiative debt. You had the Lib Dem coalition in, in 2010 which falls through the 2012 uh, Health and Care Act, which created these structures resembling an insurance system. So they're all guilty. It's been a very uh, long and stealthy secretive process because if the public understood what was happening, they couldn't get away with this. Yeah, it is It is a, a very 
carefully crafted narrative, isn't it, that we've seen over the past 20 years. Every year, they tell us the NHS is in crisis, so therefore we need to have this new legislation coming through, which has often been actually to help make the situation worse. It is quite shocking that the public, this has been kept from the public. Now, the other thing that's important here, um, Bob, is these healthcare companies. Um, are they all British companies? Is this going to benefit the, the UK economy? Um, what, what kind of companies are we seeing moving into this privatised um, care offering from the NHS? So in, in terms of the model of managed care and the back office function and the leadership, one company dominates, which is United Healthcare of America, America's biggest private insurer. You have other companies like Palantir, the CIA um, cutout company looking at data, taking over data control within the NHS. United Healthcare have also bought out control of um, patient electronic records held by GPs over 50% in, in, in England. Um, and then you have the private provider chains, which are expanding as the NHS is being contracted and more and more work supposedly to to solve the problem of the waiting list is being siphoned off to these private companies. So you shut down NHS provision and you allow the private sector to expand. So you've got a combination of data companies, insurance companies and hospital provider chains, as well as more recently, uh, smaller entities coming into pathology. Um, in Southeast London, the pathology services have been taken over by a massive multinational with a two billion, I believe, 20 year contract for pathology services being handed over to them. Yeah, this this is really shocking. Now, doctors, um, you know, they spend years training. Um, they're very educated. They're, I'm sure a lot of them must be aware of what's going on. You're a GP. What would you say is doctors' thoughts and, and what's what do they think about what's going on? I think uh, most of them are too busy to pay close attention. But our, our biggest problem is the incrementalism has led to certain things becoming normalised. The second big problem is our union, the British Medical Association, has actively kept the membership in the dark. Uh, one big example was in 2019, there was, there was a major new contract uh, signed by GPs but most of them didn't have a clue what it meant. And in fact, it was dressed up as just extra funding, but it was probably the biggest contract change since 1948, essentially bribing GPs not to employ other doctors, to employ non-doctors. So you have GPs who are now uh, responsible for the decimation of primary care. You couldn't pick it up. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now let's let's take a wider snapshot of the last three years. We've obviously got the COVID inquiry going on at the moment, um, Bob, which is costing, I think, two hundred and forty million pounds. That's the figure that I've seen. It's going to go on till twenty twenty six. Now, I was looking at X yesterday, and Sue Cook um, said something interest interesting. She said the whole thing should be cancelled. It's just a big white elephant, and the money actually invested in doctors' salaries. What's your thought on this COVID inquiry and, and the kind of things that, and questions that it's asking? I think the, uh, the framing is very narrow. It seems to be uh, reinforcing the government's COVID narrative about lockdowns and about uh, 
we should have acted earlier and we should have done things longer. But what they're not doing is looking at the evidence behind government policy. So it's turning into a bit of a soap opera. We might feel good that you know some politicians are feeling the heat, but actually there's no real accountability. Nobody will go to jail. Uh, nobody will lose their job as a result of this. It's a huge waste of taxpayer money just to reinforce the lies that were told to us in terms of managing the pandemic. Yeah. And um, Bob, you've done a lot of campaigning. Um, how do you think the next election is going to impact on all of the things we've discussed today? Obviously, you know, I think we can safely assume things might change, but I think as things stand, we can safely assume that we will end up with a Labour government. What do you, how, what impact do you think that will have on the things we're talking about, if any? Yeah, there is a, the Labour Party are fully signed up to the agenda that we've just been talking about. Keir Starmer has been endorsed by Larry Fink of BlackRock uh, Capital Firm, which has seven trillion funds that they manage. Now, you know, to get an endorsement from somebody like that does not bode well for a public NHS. Where Streeting, the shadow Labour uh, minister, has said we will invite the private sector in through the front door. We're not even bothering with the back door. None of them have critiqued the creation of these new public-private partnerships, which I've talked to you about. None of them is talking about settling the industrial dispute. Nobody's mentioning the dumbing down and the downskilling of the NHS because they are perfectly happy with it. So if anybody thinks voting a different way will make any difference, they need to really wake up quickly because unfortunately what we have is a charade of democracy. We have in fact a corporate, uh, we've had a quiet corporate coup and nobody's picked it up yet. Yeah, now Bob, I know that you care deeply about all of this, which is why you've been campaigning. Tell us, Tell um, the the listeners and watchers what you've been doing over the past years. I know you've made a few documentaries and what you've got planned um, for the next year. Yeah, so I've done a lot of public meetings. I've written a few articles, networking with a lot of people. Currently, I'm trying to support a big group of GPs who are waking up to the fact that they are being pushed out of employment by non-doctors. So that's my main focus at the moment. Um, the statutory instrument that went through Parliament on Monday, I'm trying to push people to ask for a judicial review into that uh, and look very closely at the dangers that this poses to, to public safety and patient care. So there's a lot of activity going on, but the big, the big one, I suppose, I'm supporting a campaign to unseat Starmer and to unseat West Streeting. We need these, we need these people got rid of. We need to send a political earthquake and largely the momentum behind getting rid of these people has been driven by the the sort of Gaza, the Gaza war in Gaza that has that has really crystallized a lot of people to get more active. Yeah. And look, you know, if you look at um, people who are really on the left, they can see, you know, double down news and all of that. They what their message is Starmer is a cuckoo in the nest. He's not, um, you know, really. Um, sort of looking after working class and and workers' rights. Um, he is definitely um, a plant, um, a another Tony Blair essentially. Um, Bob, very very quickly, we've got around a minute left. Have you ever thought about going into politics yourself and standing in the general election? 
I've been asked to, but it might lead to a divorce. So I'm, ho I'm holding back. <laughs> well, I can tell you now that it is a big thing and it does put a lot of pressure on the family. But I, I think you would make a great MP. I would certainly vote for you, um, Bob. So, um, you know, who knows? Give it, give it a think. Give it a think. Obviously, we've got the election coming up next year. Um, thank you so much for what you're doing, Bob, um, for everything, not just coming on TNT, but for all the work you're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bob Gill, thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Right, to the rest of you, don't go anywhere. Stay with us right here on TNT Radio. TNT Radio.